0: If you had to uh, summarize the life of King Solomon we would say that he began well, but he ended badly. He began his life learning the lessons from his father David and keeping God first and honoring God and obeying God and valuing God about material things. And when he had the opportunity to ask something from God This was his prayer in 1 Kings 3, verse 9. He said, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That was his prayer. And how did God respond to that prayer? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing what did God do? God not only gave him a wise heart, God also gave him something that he did not ask for. He gave him riches and honor. And he also promised if Solomon would continue to walk in God's ways and keep God's statutes and keep his commandments, then God also promised to prolong his, his days, give him long life. And so we can say Solomon started well. However, we, we know how he ended we know well, we we well know Solomon did not end well now what did he do he loved many foreign women and these were from nations concerning which the Lord had said to him you shall not associate with them nor would they nor should they associate with you in fact he had 300 wives 700 concubines so you might say I have thousand reasons not to listen to Solomon What else did he do? Well, as God said in his word, they turned his heart from worshipping God to worshipping idols. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. He went after Milcom, the goddess of the Ammonites. He built high places for Chemosh, the god of Moab. And he built Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. (coughs) what we'll do today is we'll study Solomon's great-grandson who follows the pattern of his great-grandfather Asa. Asa. Now I'm putting all my cards on the table already uh, so that you know where we are going. When we were here last week we learned that Asa actually removed the wrong types of worship and he removed the wrong objects of worship. He also removed the leaders and authorities that led people into wrong worship. And he also restored right worship. And because he did that, we are told in Second Chronicles 14 and 15 that God blessed him. And he brought peace and stability as Asa the king, or Asa the king, acknowledges God's generosity and kindness. After some time when God tested Judah's faithfulness, Asa actually read from the front as he acknowledged God's power and relied on him. For deliverance if you have your Bibles open turn to 2nd Chronicles chapter 14 and notice Asa's prayer there <coughs> verse 11 then Asa called to the Lord his God and said Lord there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength so help us O Lord our God for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude O Lord you are our God and let not man prevail against you and what did God do God honored Asa's reliance on him on and on his strength and he routed the enemies of Judah and gave them a great victory over the Ethiopians and the Libyans how great was the victory well for every 20 men that the Ethiopians and the Libyans had there was one from Judah and Benjamin. They were outnumbered 20 to 1 yet they completely destroyed the Ethiopians and Libyans. How did this happen? It was because Asa actually led his people in relying on God. While the beginning was great, he had a great start just like his great grandfather. We will see how he ends. In our lesson today, I've titled our lesson "Cultivating a Heart of Reliance," uh, cultivating a reliant heart, cultivating a reliant heart. And our texts for today are essentially two, but we will focus on 2 Chronicles sec- 16, and when needed, we will go to First Kings 15, verse 16 to 24. Cultivating a heart of, uh, cultivating a reliant heart. If I had to give a theme for our lesson today, it would be this. In the joys and trials of life, we are to completely and totally rely on God rather than on human strength or worldly resources. In the joys and trials of life, we are to completely and totally rely on God rather than on human strength or worldly resources. Easier said than done. First of all, we begin with the opportunity for relying on God. Verse one to verse six. As we begin, we look at the impelling circumstance. Verse one. Notice with me, Second Chronicles 16, verse one. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, or Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah, and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out, or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Now our text tells us that this was the 36th year of Asa's reign. However, if you read 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 7 and 8, it tells us that Baasha's son began to reign in the 26th year of Asa's rule. So you might say, shouldn't he have been dead 10 years back? Well, there have been two options proposed to understand this this was the 36th year after the kingdom. One option is that this was the 36th year after the divided kingdom began, so which would make it the 16th year of Asa's reign. The second option uh, is that this is a scribal error, that when the scribes were copying down the manuscripts, there was an error in copying. So this is not the 36th year, but the same year that Basha died, which would make it the twenty-sixth year of Asa's reign, which is a more likely option. Likely because if the overwhelming testimony of Asa's reign is that he was a good king, this second option gives him more years than the other option. But you know, regardless of the two options, it does nothing to do, nothing to the core facts of this story, which is what we will focus on. Now, Basha, as you probably have the handouts with you, was the third king of Israel. And he initiates an attack, as you look at verse 1, against Judah. It says he fortified Rama, which is to say he built large, thick walls and towers around Rama. Rama was six miles north of Jerusalem, as you can see on the map. And because of its location and topography, it would block all traffic from and to Jerusalem. And so Basha, what Basha is trying to do is to prevent flow, the flow of men and material to Judah. The intention is to cut all supplies so that Judah is left weak and helpless. You know, while the supplies la- cut, are cut, what this does is the needs begin to rise in Jerusalem and in Judah. You know, this was a great opportunity for Asa to repeat what he did when the Ethiopians and Libyans attacked him. But instead of relying on God, instead of speaking to God like he did in chapter 14, he takes things in his own hands. What does he do? Firstly, we see the reliance on material things. Notice verse 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben Hadad, king of Aram. Who lived in Damascus so what does he do he brings out silver and gold from the temple what is that well he steals what belongs to God he takes what people have contributed as a gift to God and to be used for godly things and he uses it as a bribe he takes precious metals and he uses it to purchase his freedom from Basha and there was not much left in the temple uh, shishak the egyptian king remember had looted the temple treasury when he had attacked rehabam the first king of the divided kingdom and there was some left and what asa gathers what asa does is that he gathers it and sends it to benhadad hadad uh, first of all then he or secondly he relies on material things but secondly or thirdly there is a reliance on mortal beings notice verse 2 at the end He sent it to whom? He sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. And he said to them, or him, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Not only does Asa rely on material things, he also relies on mortal beings in this case Ben Haddad the king of Aram or Syria and he reminds him of a treaty that existed which the Bible doesn't speak much about between his father Abijah and Ben Haddad's father Tabrimon. and he says let us continue in that tradition and let us have a treaty between the both of us uh, here's some money a gift to you but the only thing that I ask in return is that you break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, so that he will withdraw his troops from, from me. You know, But a, the tragedy of a commitment that is bought with money is that it's really not a permanent covenant or commitment. The loyalty of the king of Aram is then sold to the highest bidder. Now how does Ben-Hadad respond? Notice the immediate consequence here. Verse 4, so Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, or Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard of it. He seized fortifying Rama and stopped his work. Verse 6, then King Asa brought all Judah And they carried away the stones of Rama and its timber with which Basha had been building. And with them, he fortified Geba or Geba and Mitzpah. There's some immediate consequences that you see here. When you rely on matter and on men, many times there are some immediate benefits. And that's what happens here. Some consequences that may give you the impression that you've made a right decision when you see some immediate benefits. Uh, for money, Ben-Hadad changes his allegiance from Israel to Judah. And What does he do? He sends his commanders to attack Israel from the north. And so they conquer those four cities, the Ijon, Dan, Abel Ma'im, and all the store cities of Naphtali. Syria or Aram then hits Israel where it hurt most. When the store cities are hit, you see your backup is no more there and so when Basha the king of Israel receives this news of the attack from the north he stops fortifying Rama he stops his work what does he do he withdraws when Basha withdraws he gives Asa or Asa the breathing space that he needs he gives it gives him the confidence he needs to gather all his able men from all over Judah in fact in first Kings 15 verse 22 it says he He asked all men to join him to go back and capture Rama. And Basha has withdrawn in such a hurry that he leaves all his construction material behind, as we read in verse 4 to verse 6. Asa takes this and he fortifies Geba and Mizpah. So this act of bribing Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, And his proposal to break the covenant between him and the northern kingdom and form a new covenant with him, the king of Judah, it worked. It brought him peace. It brought him an unlikely ally. And all this eventually led, um, from Asa's perspective, to gain control of two more cities for himself. And so the short-term perspective of all of this is that it worked. Uh, The immediate consequences of this is that what I have done has has worked Uh, it's it's also called pragmatism do what works and that's what Asa does now if we're honest we too can tend to think and act like Asa we can tend to rely on people and on things and we do that simply because in the short term it works now I have had to search my own heart to see what are the ways in which I rely on matter and on men and as I thought about it you know my role is to study God's Word uh, to practice God's Word and to teach God's Word so I have a Macbook I have a 12.9 inch iPad I have a huge desktop in my office I have a number of books and commentaries that are filled in the bookshelves and my temptation as a teacher of God's word, is to say to myself, I've got all of these help for my lesson preparation for Sunday, so I don't need God. Oh, I may not say it audibly. I'm a pastor, after all. But I may do things that can show that I'm trying to do this on my own. But what can I do to show it that way? Well, I may not bathe this lesson in prayer, depending on God. I may not seek God's help as much as I should. And so in subtle ways, I can tend to show that I rely on human resources and strength rather than on God. Now, to be clear, we cannot operate in life without in some form or shape relying on things. You see, I relied on my car to get me to the church today. And so did all of you, except Tom. No, he did too. All of us did. Or you relied on someone else to give you a ride. I relied on medicine last week to help my throat feel better over the weekend. And so the issue is not reliance on things or people. The issue is relying on things and people at the exclusion of reliance on God. What are you relying on? Perhaps you're relying on your education. Or perhaps you're relying on your job, your intelligence, your smartness. Perhaps you're relying on your skills, perhaps parenting skills. Perhaps your finances, perhaps your investments, or that inheritance which you haven't received yet. You see, when you and I think we can do this project, this challenge, we can tackle this issue, issue this, this job change, uh, this rel- relationship that I have messed up without the involvement of God. What the text tells us, he tells us in verse 9, it is that we act foolishly. We disregard the sovereignty and providence of God and we draw the displeasure and discipline of God. Because you see, God disciplines the one he Loves. He does that in our case, and he does that in the case of Asa, as he sends his servant Hanani to him. So that brings us secondly to the admonition for not relying on God. The admonition for not relying on God. We begin by looking at two things. Uh, first of all, we see the confrontation with Asa. Notice verse 7 and verse 8. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, "Because you relied on the king of Aram, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand." Verse eight: Were not the Ethiopians and the Libum—that is, the Libyans—an immense army? with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. So what does God do? How does God respond to this non-reliance from Asa? God sends Hanani, the seer, the prophet, to Asa, the king of Judah. Now you have to remember that the king was the supreme authority in the culture. Uh, There was no one that was above the king his word was final once he passed a judgment that was final his decisions were final so no one could challenge him but that was the the culture but when it when it comes to God's people whoever was in authority was always under the authority of God and with the Israelites there were three offices that we generally know as the the prophet the priest and the king what was the king's role the king was a steward of his people and his resources he was a manager of God's people and God's resources his role was to write a copy of the law and read it all his life He he his role was to know the law and to remember that he was one who was under the law that was the king he was a steward of God's people and God's resources then there was the priest the priest represented the people to God and he did this as a mediator and he did it through the sacrifices that were offered the priest then represented people to God and what did the prophet do the prophet on the other hand acted like a divine diplomat he received message from God directly from God and he delivered that message to his steward the king and to his people God spoke directly to the prophet and the prophet then spoke to God's people and so Hanani comes to Asa here and he says to him Asa because you have relied on the king of Syria and because you've not relied on the Lord your God therefore the king of Aram or Syria has escaped out of your hands uh, we don't know what that plan was but perhaps God had a plan for you to conquer the army of the king of Aram instead what you did was you joined hands with this particular king and then he reminds him of his past victory Uh, just a few years back he says you were completely outnumbered by the Ethiopians and the Libyans 20 to 1 but because you relied on the Lord he saved you and he delivered you and he delivered them into your hands so it was clear that you couldn't have done this in your own strength. The strength that you received to overpower them came from God. That was very clear. You should have remembered, Asa, that God is the one that gave you the victory. He gave you the strength to conquer your enemies and to subdue them. As you stop and look at Israel's history, this is how God relishes in operating. What seems from a worldly perspective as a shore and a certain defeat God turns that into victory for his people and so that all the glory and honor are given to God and God alone remember when there was no way for Israel to escape through the uh, escape uh, you know through the Red Sea what did he do he used his servant Moses to part the Red Sea you know no one could take credit for that except God alone And then you had in Judges, Gideon, in Judges 6 to 8, he fought against the Midianites. God reduced his troops from 32,000 to first 22,000 and to ultimately 300 men. And it was with these 300 men that God gave them a victory over the Midianites who were described as people who were thick as locusts and who had camels as countless as the sand on the shore just 300 why does he do this why does he operate in this way he does it for the sake of his name he does it for the sake of his glory and anything that is done for the sake of his glory is always for our good and so Anani confronts Asa by reminding him what he did in the not too distant past and then he reminds him of what God did in the recent past And then secondly, he points him to the very character of God. First of all, the confrontation with Asa. But then secondly, as he confronts him, he points him to the character of God. What kind of God is the God of the Bible? How is he like? What does he do? How does he operate? Notice with me a few things about what God is from this verse. Verse 9 first part for the eyes of the Lord he says move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his now first of all his divine presence I mean he is a God who is all-seeing and all-knowing and is constantly aware of everything happening in this world past present and future he knows the things that are known and unknown to man. Also, he's not a local deity. He's not just the God over South Lake, uh, but he's God over the entire nation. He's God over the Israelites here. He's God over Judah. He's a he's God who is God over everything that exists because he created everything that exists. And then his desire, he does this, he says, his eyes move to and fro that he may strongly support those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. You see, the the God of the Bible is actively involved. He is deeply involved in the life of those who seek him with sincerity. So as a follower of Christ, as a believer, that is God's heart for you and for me. He is eager to help. Those who trust in him. Whenever we have a verse like this, which, which is extracting an attribute of God, it, is, it has profound implications for the text. And it is always something that has an immediate application for you and for me. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who said, When you read God's word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, It is talking to me, and it is talking about me. It is talking to me, and it is talking about me. That is, it is applicable to me. All of it. Isn't it Paul who says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be fully equipped to de- do every good work. So in our text for today, Hanani wants us to know something about God. God wants us to know something about him. Something very deep and something that is life-changing, something profound. And he wants us to know this so that we do not commit the same folly as Asa. And what is it that we need to know? I think John Piper, who spoke on this, captures it pretty well. So I'm just going to quote him. It's an extended quote, but listen as he writes on this. Now what does, he says, now what does God want you to see about himself? Consider this. If I say, the eyes of the narcotic agents run to and fro throughout the city seeking to capture drug dealers and make the community drug free, what I mean is that this is their job and that they are really out to do it. It belongs to the very nature of being a narcotic agent that you're out to get drug dealers. Or, he says, if I say the eyes of the scouts of the Big Ten athletic departments run to and fro throughout the high schools of America seeking to find the best athletes, what I mean is that this is their job and that they're really out to do it. It's the very nature of a scout to seek and find good athletes and try to recruit them that's the meaning of a scout he goes on to say well that is the way we should read verse 9 the eyes of the Lord this is the God the creator of the universe run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show his might on behalf of those whose heart is fully relying on him on people who trust him when the prophet says that what he means is that this is God's job And he is really out to do it. It belongs, he says, to the very nature of God that he overflow with divine power in the lives of people who trust him. This is right at the heart of what it means to be God. He goes on to say, this is not something God does on the weekends. It's not something he does in only churches or holy places. It's not his hobby or after-hours recreation. This is what God is doing all the time, everywhere. God's eyes are everywhere always so that he never misses one single opportunity anytime, anywhere to demonstrate his power on behalf of weak people who rely on him and not on man. This is why Esau's unbelief was folly. End of quote. That is profound. You and I believe in a God who thinks of himself as his job to delight in us, to be there for us, to give us the strength that we need, to give us everything we need when we call out to him in full sincerity and complete trust. That is your God and that is mine. His eyes move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Isa then lost sight of God's power. He also lost the ability to listen to godly advice. What does he do? That brings us to the third one, the consequences of not relying on God. (coughs) Notice at the end of verse nine, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed from now on, you will surely have worse. First of all, the consequences of not relying on God is that it is described as an act of folly. It's an utter folly to have experienced God's protection in the past and to have experienced God's blessings in the past, know his character, see him in action, and yet turn around and act as if he wants nothing to do with you. That kind of behavior, Hanani says, doesn't make sense. You have acted foolishly. As you think about ourselves, you know, reflect on your own decisions just in the past week. How faithful God has been in your life and in my life, and yet we act like Asa many times when we try to Pursue a decision without involving God. How foolish. Secondly, there's a lack of rest. Notice verse 9 at the end. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Because you did not rely on God, because you acted foolishly, Asa, you will not have rest. From now on, he says, you will have wars. Next 15 years, 25 years maybe, your life will be marked by wars you see in the earlier part to understand this in this in his life in the earlier part of Asa's life there was no one at war with him why because the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies he began peacefully he began with rest being assured for him but he ends his life with constant wars no rest surely at this time you're thinking Asa or Asa would say Lord, I, I, am, I am sorry. I have messed up here. I should have relied on you just as I did in the past. God, please forgive me. That's not what we find Asa doing. Notice in verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. He was not Angry about his sin, he was not upset that he had offended a holy God, he was angry with the messenger. Uh, Truth be told, he is really angry, not with the messenger, but the one who sent the messenger. He is angry with God, but he cannot do anything to God, so what does he do? He sends his messenger to prison. By the way, this is the first instance of the persecution of the prophet of God by a monarch see the monarchs had their moments with the prophets in the past remember uh, Samuel confronting Saul remember Nathan confronting David but they didn't persecute the prophets Uh, but here we find Asa persecuting (coughs) he says I I don't like what you just said I don't uh, care if it's the truth I don't care if I did the wrong thing, you made me angry, and so you will face the consequences of making me angry. How do you respond when you're confronted with sin? How do you respond when someone comes and says to you, brother, I think what you said there was not really helpful, perhaps even it was sinful. Or someone comes to you and says, I don't think you should have said that to them. That was really gossip. You didn't have my permission to tell that to them. So lest we be too harsh on Asa, we need to remember that we too can respond like Asa when we are confronted with sin. Instead of acknowledging our sin and pursuing God for forgiveness, we can be tempted to double down on the one who is admonishing us. What does Asa do here? He he pours out his wrath on Hanani and he doesn't address his sin with this one person and what does that do well it spills over into impacting everyone else At the end of verse 10 we're told he oppressed some of the people at the same time he's not only enraged at Hanani he also has some of his own people oppressed perhaps these were people who heard this prophet come to this king And said to the king, You know, he is right, dear king. Uh, Listen to him, seek the Lord, rely on him. And that further perhaps enraged him, and Asa oppressed them and persecuted them as well. There's a lack of self control. Fourthly, there's a lack of desire to seek God. Notice verse 11 and verse 12. On the acts of Asa from first to the last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. The next 12 to 13 years are covered in a mere sentence here. Verse 11, the other acts of Asa, we are told, are written in the books of the kings of Judah in Israel but in the 39th year that is two years before he died he became diseased in his feet he must have had a gangrene or some sort of a severe swelling or injury to his feet We might think to ourselves okay at least at this stage he will call on the name of the Lord what does he do well it, the text tells us he does not call on the Lord the writer doesn't just mention this in passing but he makes it a point to highlight this in Asa's life he says yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians now nothing wrong with seeking physicians you remember Paul addresses Luke as a beloved physician our Lord in answering to the Pharisees uh, about why he spent so much time with the sinners he would say those who are well need no physician but those who are sick that means if you're sick you need a physician nothing wrong with consulting physicians the issue is not that Asa consulted physicians but the issue is that he did not seek the help of God because even when visiting a doctor your ultimate faith my ultimate faith is to be in in the God that you and I believe in and not the physician whom he created now let's say someone falls sick and has to be taken to the hospital And even while you're making the arrangements to take this individual to the hospital, the thought, the underlying philosophy is that the knowledge of God is that God is ultimately in control of this. That even though it may have taken us by surprise, it didn't take God by surprise. He allowed our place, those events and circumstances in our life to bring about what he has brought about. And if we pray and healing comes to this individual, it is made possible through God, and if, if healing does not come, we trust our God, God's good plans for this individual He's is eager to strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What is God looking for? God is looking for a man. He is looking for a woman whose heart is completely and totally dedicated and committed to him. He is looking for a heart that is reliant on him. As we look at this dark picture uh, there's a silver lining at the end as we think of the consequences for not relying on God because we see this as an occasion for God to display his grace and mercy notice verse 13 and 14 so Asa slept with his father's having died in the forty-first year of his reign they buried him in his own tomb which he had cut out for himself in the city of David And they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds blended by the perfumer's art. And they made a very great fire for him. As you look at the conclusion of Asa's life, there are three things that that are mentioned in these two verses that point to God's mercy and grace upon this man. Firstly, notice that God gave him 41 years to be a monarch, to be a steward of God's people and his resources. Now that is a long period. It was a privilege and honor to be a king. And God gave him that privilege. Secondly, even though he did not end well, his overall reign, if you were to read 1 Kings chapter 15, his overall reign is characterized as good. There were more number of years that he was good than he was bad. He was given the dignity of being buried in his own tomb and thirdly he was honored by his people as you look at the last words because they made a great fire for him because they thought of him as someone who is good he did a lot of good if you were here last week you'll remember from Corbett's lesson the kind of things that he did that were characterized as good and God bless those but that's not how he ended So you might be asking, why is this text in the Bible at all? What is the reason for God to have a story like this, this event, in the Bible? There's a reason why this text is in the Bible. There are some things that we need to look for and learn from this text. But before we go there, let me remind you of the theme that I mentioned up front, and it's in your handouts as well. In the joys and trials of life, we are to completely and totally rely on God rather than on human strength or worldly resources. So the question then is how can you, how can I cultivate a heart that is reliant on God? How do we grow and nurture an attitude that leans and depends on God? Is your life marked by someone? A characteristic that says that man that woman oh he or she relies on God how do we learn how to do this Well, first of all we have to focus on the giver rather than the gift in all of life ask yourself am I prioritizing the gift more than the giver my talents my finances or whatever it is that you might rely on am I relying on that more than the one who actually gives those gifts. Am I truly seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? You see, Asa was set up for success. He had tasted the goodness and kindness of God. He had relied on him in the past. And yet, when he was successful, he took his eyes off of God. Now, the text doesn't tell us why did he choose, made those choices. We don't know that. But if you look at your own life, it's typically when everything is going well that you can fall into a temptation that you never envisioned. He was successful and he took his eyes off God. He relied on material things and mortal beings. He focused on the gift rather than the giver. Isn't it our Lord who says in the Sermon on the Mounts, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight focus on the giver rather than the gift secondly let hearing from God and speaking to God be your first response let hearing from God that is by pouring yourself into God's word spending time in communicating with god be your first response you know while pursuing help from human resources or physicians is not wrong as we have seen what is wrong is you pursue them at the expense of pursuing god and so make it a habit to ask what does the bible say about this issue what do godly men and women have to say about this issue before making a decision make it a habit to say Why don't I pray about this and then pray about it? You know, God loves to be sought out. He loves to hear his children pray. And he always, always desires the best for them. He has been faithful in your life in the past. Why would he be any different in the present or in the future? Let hearing from God and speaking to God be your first Response. Thirdly and finally, make it your goal to end well. You know, we end where we began. Solomon and Asa began well, but they did not end well. How do you end well? So, first of all, you resolve to end well. That means you make an intentional commitment to say this is my resolution at a very young age Jonathan Edwards was perhaps just 18 or 19 Penned what he called as resolutions which were essentially his purpose statements for his life there were a total of 70 of them the one that I'm going to mention and then quote later on the one I'm going to mention is essentially a summary of his resolution but he has one that says resolution number one I will live for God very simple I will live for God resolution number two if no one else does I still will I will live for God if no one else does I still will that's a summary of his resolutions you may not find it in his 70 resolutions but here are a couple that are found in his resolutions with numbers first one is resolution number 17 Resolved, he says, that I will live so as I w- shall wish I had done when I come to die. Let me read a second before I explain them. Number 52, he says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved, that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done. Supposing I live to old age. If I combine both of them, what he's saying is, when I come to the old age, if God gives me that, he died at the age of 54, by the way. When I come to an age that is old age, and I look back, I don't want to say I wish I had done that differently. I don't want to say I wish I had sought that person's forgiveness. I don't want to say I wish I had relied on God more. No, I'm going to do that right now. And he was just 18 or 19. Some of you are saying, well, we are in our late 70s or 80s. Well, if God has given you this life, I'm sure he has a purpose as his word says. If there are things that you need to resolve, if there are things that you need to forgive somebody else or seek someone else's forgiveness, God (laughs) gives you the opportunity even right now. I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I'm gonna make a goal. I'm going to have a purpose and I'm going to move towards that purpose. I'm gonna disciple someone. I'm gonna take someone through partners. I'm going to influence 10 people in my life so that they go ahead and then influence 10 other individuals. Make it your goal to end well so first of all you resolve to end well but secondly remember that the Christian life is a race it is frequently compared to a race it's not a hundred-meter dash for most of us looking at the average age in our country for most of us it's a long race it's a marathon So thinking of it as a race this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 1. therefore since we have So great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And my prayer for us, my prayer for each one of us, as it is for me, is that we would be found whenever the end comes as that individual, that man, that woman relied on God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity with which it speaks. Uh, Thank you for these individuals that are real individuals. This is real history. Events recorded are real, and they're recorded for us. As an example to us. So that we would not be discouraged when we don't do the things that are mentioned in the text that we should do. But rather we would learn from them. And we would be reminded of what a wonderful and amazing God we have. He's so patient, so kind. One who gives us strength and wisdom. And who provides us everything that we need. Your word tells us that you have given us Christ. And if you have given us Christ, how will you not, along with him, give us everything that we need for life and for godliness? And you have. And so we give you thanks. As we look to the race that is ahead of us, help us to run this race with an intention to win the prize, which is to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Along with Paul, we want to say we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. May that be the testimony of every one of us here today. Or perhaps there's someone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray that they would turn to you in repentance and faith and place their trust in you alone, one whose eyes go to and fro and who is delighted to do good for his own people. We commit the rest of our time here and Uh, Today, into your hands, help us, Lord, to cultivate a reliant heart. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.